0: By becoming a monthly patron you'll also receive our weekly newsletter
1: welcome to the quillette podcast i'm jonathan Kay. if you follow me on twitter you will sometimes see me start off tweets with phrases like beyond satire or stranger than fiction this is especially true when i'm commenting on some strange development in the world of radicalized gender activism well turns out i've been proven wrong the world is not beyond satire and I know this thanks to English author Simon Edge, who has just published a very funny book called The End of the World is Flat. The novel centers on an NGO called the Orange Peel Foundation, an obscure geographical charity that is taken over by a flat earther who wants to convince everyone that calling the earth spherical isn't just wrong, but hateful, as it divides the world into the false binary of north and south hemispheres. As the novel unfolds, The group leads a campaign to declare so-called globularism to be a form of hate speech. School teachers are denounced for having globes in the classroom, and pilots are denounced if they rely on a spherical model of the earth. Meanwhile, the flat earthers call themselves true earth advocates, and their enemies are dubbed true earth rejecting globularists, or TURG for short. Now, if you've been following the debate about gender in the radicalized corners of progressive social media, You'll know, of course, that the Flat Earthers are a send-up of those who claim that biological sex is a myth, and that turgs are a stand-in for so-called TERFs, a term of abuse hurled at those, including me and Simon, who stubbornly note that, no, biological sex does not exist on some kind of fuzzy spectrum. Male and female are real categories, and humans are sexually dimorphic creatures. Simon spoke to me last week over Skype from his home in the English countryside and I've asked him to start things off by reading a page from his book, which is the first thing you'll hear when his voice comes on. This is the part where Shane Foxley, who's leading the True Earth campaign at the Orange Peel Foundation, excitedly tells his colleague about the supportive retweet they just got from a celebrity named Latifa Latif. Something amazing
2: has just happened. The background's too complicated to explain, but there's stuff happening on Twitter right now that's really important to us. Yes, I gathered that. I mean, we've got some allies involved who are tweeting some of our key messages. I want them to do well, but there's a danger they may not because they're a bit mad, bold. So what's just happened? It's unbelievable. I never in my wildest dreams thought it would go so well so quickly. One of the messages has only been retweeted by Latifa Latif. Who? Don't you know her? She's massive on here. She's an actress, I think, although I've never seen her in anything. The important thing is that she has like a gazillion Twitter followers. Let me check. Yes. Yeah. 1.2 million. Is that a lot? Craig didn't even have a Twitter account rather to Shane's relief. That's loads. She's it a lot. And lately she's become famous for allying herself with all kinds of progressive causes. Minority, this diversity, that. Not your obvious flat earther then. No, but she's just retweeted one of these actual tweets. That's like epic. I really can't believe it.
1: So I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Latifa Latif. This may be a complete coincidence, right? But there's an actress named Jamila Jamil. Is that <laughs> yeah, uh she was in she was in a show called The Good Place. Oh my god, and is she on Twitter? It could be. The Good Place was actually a great show. I'm so glad I discovered her Twitter account after I finished watching it. Did you have real people in mind as you were writing the satire?
2: Yes, in some cases, yes. When you write a novel, quite often you can be informed by real people from your your own life uh, in mind who help you create characters. So there's some of those. But yes, there are characters who... If you are in the UK and you follow the whole gender issue quite carefully, and you know anything about the charity at the centre of the whole shebang, which has been massively influential in uh, normalising some really quite crazy things, then you might well recognise a former CEO and a more recent CEO. There are some winks in it you may possibly, some some people have found parallels between the crazy postmodern academic psychobabble um, guru, Professor Jared Baker, with an academic in real life.
1: Tell us about <laughs> globularism. What is the toxic creed of globularism?
2: I wanted to posit that what if Somebody was a flat earther and they wanted to impose flat earth views on the rest of the world. So my idea was to take a charity which had done something in this field, some a geographical charity. I don't know if there are any geographical charities, but and then I remembered it was, it was a big issue when I was at school and university, uh, the fact that the Mercator projection is a very poor representation of the world in, in two-dimensional form. So how about you had a charity to... Just persuade people to stop using the Mercator projection, and to use something a little bit more accurately representative of, of the size of countries. This is uh, where you are. Canada is is quite affected by this, I think, isn't it?
1: We are a survivor of Mercator projectionism. So now, you know, I've come out as as a TURG. That's T E R G. And tell us what TURG stands for.
2: So people who who understand that that the Earth is really flat are true Earth believers, or they respond to true Earth. Sensibilities and people who reject that, the heretics are true earth rejecting globularists. Turg for short. <laughs> globularist <laughs> is is a word which is not in most people's vocabulary because we don't need a word for believing that the earth is. They're cis. Yeah, in the weird and wonderful world of flat earthism, then the word globularist comes up quite a lot, so you will end
1: up using it.
2: Oh, so it's a real thing. Yeah.
1: In flat earth culture, globularist is a real slur. Yeah. Okay, I assumed you made it up.
2: It's, so it's very convenient. The parallels are there
1: jay talavera you're gonna to have to tell us who he's based on if anybody the billionaire who takes over the orange peel foundation he himself has a stroke of genius i think it's him that he says well look there's got to be an anti-racist tie-in within the make-believe world of the book it's kind of credible if you believe in globularism then you're also gonna believe in this north-south binary between the two hemispheres that's a false binary it's totally racist And so globularism becomes a sort of offshoot of colonialist ideas. Is that the key to how the anti-globularists sell their message?
2: It's actually Shane Foxley, my, my character who's running the Orange Peel Foundation, who's been given this Somebody says to him, we will give, I don't specify how much money it is, but it's basically a ton of money to, to take on this ridiculous project to convince the world the Earth is flat. So, God, where the hell do you start? Like any big project, the first thing you do is panic. What the hell am I going to do? And then you sit down and you think it through. He starts modestly by thinking about language. So in the world of anti-globularism, in the world of flat earthery, the idea of a globe is a bad thing. You know maybe if you think that globalisation that's a bad word among the the demographic, the targeting lots of us will agree that there are many bad things about globalisation, so maybe why don't we start off? just start in the world of the same Start off being reasonable by listing the uh, the ways in which globalization has been a bad thing and he tasks some of his staff to do it and they come back and they uh, they have a long list of ways that globalization has been quite bad and then they add on the end uh, some ways in which globalization has been quite a good thing he throws them off the list (laughs) so you do a campaign that globalization is bad this is not set any warning flares going up because this is something that a charity might do so from there as a sort of tribal badge of belonging to show that we all agree that globalization is a bad thing why don't we stop using the word global and say instead worldwide it's a synonym why don't we do that and then that's a way of of showing that we care and i you know i haven't said this explicitly in in the novel but you know it's a little bit like pronouns You know, it costs you nothing, just put your pronouns in your signature. The idea really is that this is the the insertion of the thin end of
1: the wedge. It's a mark of belief.
2: Yeah, so once you've got it in there, you can start tapping on the thick end of the wedge to get it further in. And... The only way you'll do it, I mean, clearly, if you present this to the vast majority of people, then it's crazy. But if you are doing it within a bubble, which has tribal rules, where people sort of you know, get get taken with an idea and carry it, if your target demographic are the kind of people who will respond Uh, very enthusiastically to any suggestion that something is racist so if you then take the often articulated view that there is a division of the world into north and south which is clearly based on on some truths even though it and then if you add to that the sort of stuff that passes for clever coming out of universities that nothing is real that everything is a social construction then maybe the division of the world into hemispheres is a social construction because one of the things it certainly does is help perpetuate inequalities. You can riff like that for quite a long time without sounding obviously insane and just sound like you're messing, you're tossing around interesting ideas. I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to do the, the thought experiment of, of if this, if you really were commissioned to do this, what would you do? And this is my attempt as, a, as an answer. But also, it's not very hard to see the parallels for how you would do the same thing if you were turning biology on its head.
1: Was it difficult for you to present a lighthearted satire when you know people who've been hurt by this? One person who blurbed your book, I'm thinking of uh, Julie Bindell... Her whole life has been upended. Is there a tension there? Well,
2: I'm certainly not making fun of what happened to Julie and my character, Jenny Pugh. They go after her so that she becomes this lonely figure because they need a hate figure because it's a lot easier to, to get a tribe motivated if there's somebody to hate, which is entirely what happened to Julie. And for many years, she was in the wilderness doing this years ago i i went along with it too uh not particularly loudly or publicly but i just accepted it as given that julie bindle was a bad thing and i'm now you know honored to call her a friend i don't know if you've seen it but there's a, there's a youtube thing of, of julie going to address a meeting somewhere where she kind of gets ambushed by kids on a staircase before she's trying to get up to the stage and uh they're all clearly very young and I mean want to say kids students i mean and they're wearing balaclavas. Julie, I think, is on her own, and she's videoing it. And she is trying to sort of laugh it off, whilst also you can hear the, the fear in her in her voice, and she's being intimidated, and she's being there attempting to humiliate her. Once you've seen it, you don't forget it. So I have a similar scene where, where my character Jenny Peer is trying to get into a meeting. In terms of making fun of it, I found myself very engaged with this ish- issue on Twitter, And I have a past as, you know, more than 20 years ago, I was the editor of a gay paper in London, capital Gay. And I have written about gay politics and, and the, the, the struggle for equality before the law in the UK over about 20 years as, as a sort of bolt on to my day job, which was a, a national newspaper journalist. But this was very divorced from what I do, which is to write satirical novels. And, uh, and I suddenly realised, well, I can do this. This is something that I know how to do. Most people don't. It's a way of me bringing the knowledge and expertise that I've acquired after obsessing about this on Twitter for two or three years. And I can tell the story allegorically, I can maybe put a different light on it, but perhaps make it more accessible, more shareable, you know, it's a peculiar thing when you write a novel that you, you need to have a vivid cast of characters in your head and you're trying to work out plotting things and, and you're writing it and then you realize that wow that's a brilliant parallel. So so globularist is the same as cis and you're dead chuffed with yourself. Really pleased with yourself. Wow, this is working. And you can't really tell anybody because it takes a lot, far too much explanation. So a little bit, you're sitting there sort of hugging yourself. You can't wait to get to the end because people will really like it, you hope, if anybody ever gets to read it. So there's, there's quite a lot of that going on. And I've been trying to explain what I've been doing to people who are movers and shakers in this debate. Quite a lot of the time I was finding, well, I'm doing a satirical novel. I'm writing a comedy about, about flat earthery and hoping that they would understand without too much explanation for me that this was intended to be a satirical parallel and discovering that actually i was being too opaque and i needed to do some more explaining otherwise it would just people would not get the point at all you know if you're being too subtle and it's going over people's heads then just you know improve it make it clearer and the one thing which i i did found made it unambiguous was the true earth rejecting global risk if we call the rebel movement turgs then you have to be quite divorced from everything that's going on not to notice that one.
1: One challenge that any satirist faces is when my book comes out in a year, will it still be current? I put this in my tweets all the time. I say, you can't make this up. This is stranger than satire. Just a month ago, I wouldn't have thought this were possible. Was that a worry? And publishers in particular, they're paid to worry about that sort of thing.
2: Well, I'm published by a very small independent publisher, called lightning books for whom i also work so i'm a member of the team so i've been doing a day job while writing this but one of the things about little independence is that we are much more nimble so i could write it up to the wire i could incorporate stuff like that but my bigger problem is will i get it finished in time it's actually it's worth making the point that that i am aware that the version of these events i have told is very uk specific i don't know how this ideology these ideas got into the mainstream in the united states and canada i imagine it did it in a different way but very much in this country there was a powerful organization an influential and very respected organization Called Stonewall, which had worked over about 25 years to overturn a very large number of anti-gay laws, which were mainly a throwback to Victorian times, and they had made an incredibly good job of it. Delivering same-sex marriage was the icing on the cake that, you know, five years earlier would have seemed impossible, and nobody would have bothered trying it because you wouldn't achieve it and we and they achieved that so then for this organization to be Redundant to have nothing left to do, you might as well just rest on your laurels, get out while the going's good, wind up, and and give redundancy to your team. They chose not to do that, and instead they looked around for another cause and started inventing minorities like poor persecuted asexuals and things like that, and then having a workplace scheme for employers to sign up to in order to show what nice people they were to work for, called the Diversity Champion Scheme, giving sort of merit badges. Yeah, yeah. And the bizarre thing that I think it started out as, let's have this scheme and show that if you're gay, if you're lesbian and gay, this would be a nice place to go and work. This is a good thing for recruitment. It was very successful. And, and, you know, I think quite often in, in situations like this, once everything has been won and achieved, it's very easy then for big corporates to put their hands up and join in and say, yeah, we're part of this too. So now they have, or they used to until about six months ago, they had about 850 members of this scheme which represents between them they employ about 25 percent of the uk workforce so it's immense so they started a competition between them to be getting the top 100 and then a list and for some reason which i don't fully understand employers massively care about getting to the top of this list so stonewall were then giving them tasks to do if you fulfill
1: but one of the tasks was retweeting their own propaganda i think it was actually very clever brilliant i find it interesting that You've written this very funny book, Andrew Doyle, best known as Titania McGrath. We've had him on the podcast. I don't presume that you know him because I don't want to say that you people all know each other. I've sent him a couple of my books. Happens to be a gay man, happens to be English, happens to be well-educated like you, happens to be white, happens to be an intellectual who also has a side gig as a humorist. If you look at the people fighting this battle, you've got a lot of lesbians. The LGB side of this, they've kind of become the vanguard, and you're the humor contingent. As a straight guy, I kind of feel guilty that you guys are doing all the heavy lifting. I talk to female authors who've written about this issue. As feminists, they feel betrayed. As progressives, they feel betrayed. But is the sense of betrayal maybe more acute among people who have been in the LGBT scene for many years?
2: there are many people who have been really central much much more than me to this phenomenal achievement of repealing this horrible victorian legislation and creating a world in which nobody cares if you're lesbian or gay and you know a lot of those people who've been doing all of that are either been friends of mine or people i certainly know to say hello to and you know i'm i'm sort of of that world i first came across the alphabet thing when i went to work for the Green Party of England and Wales.
1: Oh, wow. They've had their adventures with this issue, I think, huh?
2: Yeah. The candidate, very, very smart woman, who then became co-leader of the Green Party. And this was in 2015, 2016. The gay greens, as I would call them, were called the LGBTQIA greens. And I remember saying at the time, this is just stupid. You know, I can tell you, as a gay man, that if you stand for election and you say you are relevant to lesbian and gay community and you call people that, they're going to laugh in your face because you've got A there for asexual and you're t- trying to talk about LGBTQIA bars.
1: And I, which is intersex, which is a medical issue. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Exactly. And and so I argue
2: this strongly and, and I hadn't realized that I was just so culturally aberrant variance to, to this party, which I had joined fairly uh, newly, fairly recently. I sort of won the argument up to a point. So the candidate followed my guidance in some of the publicity materials. But I was wrong. I was plainly wrong. The, I, I have been shocked by the, the way that, that gay men of my generation have been, by and large, willingly accepted what I consider to be a nonsense and a
1: slap in the face. Well, because it doesn't hurt men as much as it hurts women. Maybe part of it with gay men is as lot it just doesn't affect me. Yeah yeah
2: i i think partly that and i think partly i my own personal position is that i i'm widowed five years ago i met the love of my life who developed cancer very shortly after a terminal cancer we spent five years very intense and loving five years but but really grim as well some people disappeared, couldn't see them for dust. Other people came to the fore. I basically changed my life quite a lot. But what, what mattered to me shifted. And the gay world, the institutions of the gay world, clubbing, stuff that, that I cared about a great deal when I was younger and I thought was important, became much less important. And so I detached from you know former friendship groups and so on. And I now live very, very happily in the countryside, and no longer believe, as many gay men do, that if I set foot outside the metropolitan area, I'll be hacked to death by people with pitchforks. And I think that has kind of influenced my sense.
1: So I noticed that, forget if it was Wikipedia or or some other profile, you were described as a former gossip columnist. It does have a derogatory connotation, However, you develop a certain instinct for understanding the grubby publicity-seeking aspects of human character, especially among Latifa Latif types. Do you think that experience as a gossip columnist helped you understand and satirize some of the motivations of play here because there is this weird interplay Between TikTok culture among 14-year-olds and postmodern gender constructs being created by people with four university degrees... You're a well-educated person. You have both ends of it. Did this former career <laughs> as a gossip columnist, did it help you?
2: I worked for the London Evening Standard. Got a venerable sort of diary column on that. So I, I worked for that. It, it's not not a particularly grubby gossip column. So I suppose there was...
1: You weren't reporting on who threw up in which nightclub bathroom, is what you're saying?
2: Not really, no. But what I was, what we call in this country, middle market tabloid news journalist. So I worked for the Daily Express... Founded by a Canadian, was Lord Beaverbrook. You know, like all young men, I you know took myself very seriously and thought I was called to higher things. But in a competitive media world. I made a few wrong turns and had a couple of bits of bad luck. So I basically got stuck on a middle market tabloid newspaper as a feature writer for a long time. And then along the way, sort of newspapers kind of abolished themselves as a career because people stopped buying them. However, when you look back on your own life, the thing that that gave me was a, but my role really was as a feature writer was to take a subject and make it interesting and make it uh, and explain it and you got given a different subject every day sometimes that would be very complicated and so it'd be quite sort of yeah a bit of a yeah quite a bit of a thrill try and get your head around it stay one step ahead and then sort of rehash it in a way that readers would understand and find interesting hopefully and I think actually that's a really good discipline I'm quite proud now of having that skill that I can do that because I think I do have through my training a sort of magpie eye for little gems that could make something funny or you know little little snippets which is where the gossip columnist does come in how can you sex that up make that a little bit more accessible and appealing which really is this whole project How, how can you retell the whole gender lunacy thing in a way that will be a page turner and make people laugh and want to give it to their friends
1: If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work whatever you need especially at a time like this no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles because you deserve to be happy better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist and you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship, and now back to the Quillette podcast. Helen Dale reviewed your book and she rejected Helen Joyce's, Helen Joyce's economist writer who's written her own non-satirical book about the subject. We've interviewed her on the podcast. Helen Joyce compared you to Swift and the other Helen, Helen Dale, said, no, no, that's, that's wrong because Swift is rather cruel the correct comparison is to Aristophanes, I think I'm getting the pronunciation correct, who was much more charitable with his villain figures, in the sense that you present the motivations of these super woke and even somewhat trolly progressives in in a way that maybe readers can understand. Was that your goal? And was that difficult? I mean, knowing what they did to Julie Bendel and others, was that difficult?
2: I think if you're going to novelize this, you know, you've got to be sympathetic to people. The person at Stonewall who took over and added the T onto the LGB is called Ruth Hunt. And I don't know her personally, but I've seen her speak. And uh, the time I did see her speak, uh, wow, you know, she is a very, very sophisticated, really articulate, presents very well. They are lucky to have her. And then she became the, the chief executive, and and because I, you know, she's really stuck in my mind that wow, this is a really impressive person, and uh, and part of me, had thought, well, she can't really believe it. So maybe she is being, maybe she's got a board behind her who who are saying, well, well Saki, if we if you if you don't do this, or you know, the money, this is where the money's at, so you've got to do it. And I'm not suggesting that. I have no idea who thinks what because I'm not close enough to them. But it does sort of start you on, along the process of thinking through, well, what would I do? What what is going on in people's heads? How did how can you start off where the founders of Stonewall, who are a bunch of actors who probably aren't particularly well known in Canada, but maybe Simon Callow, who's you know is in movies and has has come out to as a gay actor, and has uh, he wasn't specifically a founder of Stonewall, but he was friends with Ian McKellen, who founded Stonewall. And, and they have ended up, he's come out today saying Stonewall is doing some terrible things. So, so how do these two people who started in exactly the same place, how did they end up so far apart? And I think if, if you are a if you're a novelist or if you you know if you're doing anything creatively you have got to imagine what that process is like for the people going in the direction that's opposite to the one you've gone in so for example i mean i didn't really have space to go into it very much and I, and, and there was a limit to how many characters you can jam into a short satirical novel but you know what happens to the staff are there some who can see what's going on and a little bit uncomfortable with it probably well maybe they just peel off halfway through or but you know, most staff stay in jobs not because they love what they do but because we need a job and you've got to pay the mortgage. Most of life is actually an accommodation with stuff. I worked for a kind of aggressively right-wing newspaper that believed in a whole load of stuff that I violently disagreed with, but I happened to be stuck and couldn't get a job anywhere else. And so, and there are probably many people there like me. Journalism is full of this kind of thing and, and each of you can uh, can be in your own sort of individual hell over it, making your, you know, having your own personal rubicons of what you're prepared to do and what you're not and how you justify it in your own head. It's not too much of a stretch to try and imagine what, what you would do yourself if you were put in the position of being offered a vast amount of money to sell nonsense to the world. And it would probably change you. And you'd probably, the way you think about it would gradually evolve and you would find justifications.
1: One thing that has changed since you started writing the book is that there has been this pronounced conspiracist push among right-wingers. In regard to a completely different subject, which is vaccines and COVID-19 more generally, clearly misinformation and conspiracism and propaganda and anti-scientific attitudes, you see them on the left and you see them on the right. One thing that troubles me, because I spend a lot of my time skewering left-wing pieties, sometimes satirically, sometimes not, but I always have to remind myself that In terms of the net detriment to humanity, right at this moment, arguably conservative conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines are doing more damage than all of this cultish gender nonsense being peddled by the left. What bothers me on the left is that the anti-scientific attitudes have official approbation in many quarters. Is this something you wrestle with as well?
2: What I would say, I think there's a fascinating distinction to be drawn, and you've alluded to it already, that, that with your classic conspiracy theory it tends to be followed by uh, uh, adhered to but by less educated people not necessarily stupider people but and and often people who who get really delve into conspiracy theories can be people with 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 inquiring minds with a great spirit of inquiry but because of lack of uh, lack of education which makes it harder to tell the difference between something sensible and something crap that's how people end up believing in anti-vax stuff and that bill gates is injecting you with tracking devices the the massive difference is that the gender nonsense the people who don't believe it are just what do you reckon 95 90 percent of people it's the most educated it's the most influential who are attempting to impose it from the top it's the elite imposing it that's bizarre i mean it's just extraordinary
1: Humor is political. We had a comedian on the show, Jessica Pigeot, who described the scene in Vancouver's woke stand-up clubs where the decision to laugh at a joke or not laugh at a joke can have career-ending consequences especially open mic night because within the first 30 seconds someone gets up and you might not know what their politics are and then you laugh at the joke and then 30 seconds later they reveal themselves as a conservative but you can't take your laughter back yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're already on record as as, as having laughed uh, has there been anyone who's come to you and said i don't agree with your politics on gender but i found your book funny or has the appreciation of the comedic aspects of your book broken down strictly along political lines
2: I'm assuming it will. So I'm at pains to say, if you think that you're not going to like this, then you you probably won't. You know, I, I've had nothing as bad as any woman gets who sticks her head above the parapet. I'm t- I tend to be more ignored, um, like most men are. There has been within the publishing world, which is a you know very captured, as you know. My publisher, my boss, was very strongly advised not to do this because it would impact badly on the company's reputation and also it was a bad book and it didn't make sense. You know, I took it seriously. If it doesn't make sense, it needs to work on its own terms. That I was concerned about. But if you feel threatened by the message you think the book is putting across, then you are probably just going to hate the damn thing.
1: Back in 2020, I think, there was an aborted effort to cancel J.K. Rowling among some super woke employees at her publisher. And of course it didn't work because there were nine figures on the table <laughs> and J.K. Rowling makes a ton of money for everybody. Was that a precedent that you thought of because your publisher is much smaller and as funny as you are, you're you're less well known than J.K. Rowling?
2: Yes, absolutely. Because I, I thought, you know, she is, J.K. Rowling is, is too big to destroy. Both I and my publisher are too small to destroy. Interesting. So it, it does give us a, a little niche. Independent publishing is a, is a tough business where you're doing quite a lot of hand selling. You get to know your customers. Authors who prosper doing it are people who will engage a lot with their readers. There might be a problem with retail. We have one big high street chain, Waterstones, very influential. The retailer tends to have quite a conservative buying policy, so it will only pile high the largest publishing houses, we tend to be quite ignored anyway. So, you know, if they boycott us, if worst case, they decide to boycott us, they're not selling us anyway.
1: Simon Edge's book is called The End of the World is Flat, and he joins us from his home in England. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.